Ladies and gentlemen and other fellow humans, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a podcast setting a a course to discuss the future of the final frontier in Star Trek Strange New Worlds, Lower Decks, Prodigy, and more. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and I'm joined by our panel of Star Trek franchise explorers, including Rachel Clow. Don't talk to me or my comet ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Tyler Monaghan. Hey, Chris and Rachel. So happy to be here. Thank you, sir. And the unflappable, incontrovertible Cicero Holmes. I just recently learned that sometimes things go so badly that the best thing to do is laugh. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, we're back to talk about the second episode of the first season of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, an episode that's done more for one of the franchise's original characters than has really been done since at the very least 2009, but honestly, probably more like 1991, just if you're considering Ahura as a character in the prime timeline. Um, I, I knew this, I guess, off the top of my head, but it was still weird to realize that Celia Rose Gooding, the actress who is playing Cadet Ahura on this show, is only the second performer ever to play Prime Ahura. So that's wild, and it just shows how much room there is to to show more of her history and more about her which is uh it's a cool unique opportunity no pressure though no no of course not no why would there be just one of the most iconic television characters in history she's doing a fantastic job though like honestly i think she's doing great and we'll talk about no that doubt. In a yeah, but um, we're definitely more into the uh, as as the production team alluded to before this season kicked in or before the series kicked in. Rather, we're into the more episodic structure with episodes that have beginnings, middles and ends. So before we actually get into our episode discussion, I actually wanted to ask the panel about the structures of these first two episodes so far. So, Ty, I actually want to throw it to you first. How would you say these single episodes help to distinguish Strange New Worlds, not only from other recent Star Trek, which you've certainly absorbed, but from other modern television? Because there was a lot of talk going of, of about going back to a classic kind of structure. But does this, to you, feel like storytelling of old? Is there anything that's antiquated about this? How do you feel about that? Yeah, um, I think the main word I would use is relief. Uh, it is really... These these two, I mean, we're only two episodes in, right? But these two episodes have felt like um, just such a welcome change of pace from so much of the TV that I'm used to. I don't watch a ton of TV. Like you asked me, not just modern Star Trek, but other TV. And Star, Star Trek is probably seventy five percent of the current television that I that I watch right now. I don't watch a ton of new stuff. Um, but, you know, especially compared to the new Star Treks, it really just does feel like a breath of fresh air. Um, and one thing, like, that we'll get into more as we keep going with this conversation, but that, you know, I just want to kind of pat myself on the back. In our last episode of Debrief, I repeatedly mentioned, I'm so excited that we're going to get a little bit of back. We're going to get an episode where we get to kind of dig into Uhura, was, I think, the example that I used. <laughs> and we're not going to have to wait, like multiple seasons like we've talked about with some of this crew on discovery there's a couple that we've gotten to know a little bit recently and it's been wonderful to get that opportunity but there are still several members of that bridge crew that we just barely know anything about and it's wild that after two episodes i feel 
kind of more connected to Uhura and also to Spock than maybe I do about like uh, Milson, Bryce, uh, the other guy whose name I can't even remember right now on Discovery. <laughs> and it's just like really cool that we can, you know, I think contrary to what you might intuit when you hear that it's going to be more episodic, it actually leaves a lot more time and breathing room to kind of sit with those characters. To me, two of the gold standard shows just in the world, for, for me just personally, are The Next Generation and The Simpsons. And I saw, you know, just like flavors of both of those in these episodes of Strange New Worlds where uh, the characters make mistakes. They learn some lessons. I don't think Uhura is done learning lessons though, right? I don't think she's like, oh, problem solved. I totally belong in Starfleet. Now, I think this is a theme, um, just like Homer... Uh, making stupid mistakes and having to to remind himself uh, that he loves his wife and just like um, Data's struggle to be more human uh, and to understand what that's all about. These don't have to be, I think a lot of modern TV makes these things that have to be these huge story arcs and when they're resolved, they're resolved. I don't think it has to be that way. That's not how the human journey works. And so um, that's my really long soliloquy about why two episodes in, I'm still super excited about uh, this format and it's really working for me so far. Excellent. No, that's great to know. Rachel, you spoke a lot before this show premiered about the structure. How does it feel to you now? I mean, does it feel distinct from other modern TV that you watch? Do you feel like it's a throwback or is it just kind of its own thing? I mean, how does that all combine? Um, I think it's it's absolutely different from a lot of things on TV right now. And to me, you know, I feel like all TV used to be, uh, maybe I didn't watch all TV, you know, prior to the 2000s or whatever. But uh, for me, like, old TV was super episodic. Mm-hmm like TNG and the Simpsons and stuff that was made to be in syndication forever. And it didn't matter and everything had to reset. And then they started doing uh, more serialized storytelling, but that felt really new and elevated. But if you watch some of those shows that were like sort of innovators in the serialized storytelling, like I'm thinking like lost or breaking bad, maybe, um, Maybe Breaking Bad's not really an innovator, but um, but when you watch those, every episode still feels like an episode, right? True. Like there is a conclusion within, especially with Lost, but uh, where like every episode was, um, you know, explicitly focused on one character. <laughs> um, but every episode felt like an episode within a serialized narrative. And then I think that kind of like people were like, ah, people like serialized TV. And it kind of like almost has gotten degraded to the point where they're just making 10 hour movies and putting episode breaks at like random points. And a lot of times when you're watching a show, like an episode doesn't feel like, like it has any meaning. Like it was like, Oh, they just stopped there. And it's like, to me, if you're making a TV show and you are trying to make a a good quality TV show, like every um, you know, like an episode should sort of like feel like a, a package or but if you're going to release it weekly, right. Episode by episode, week <laughs> right. by week, right. you can't yeah. like wait a week for an episode. That's all build up. Yes. 
Exactly. Um, There's, I want to ask you something else too, because you mentioned the elevation of serialized. So does it feel like strange new worlds to you? Maybe something that sets it apart is that it's not trying to be prestige TV. No, no, no. So oh, okay. I'm getting right. to my point. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. sorry. I, I went down another. Uh, oh, forgive. Path. <laughs> but, okay. So to the point where the serialization, sometimes it feels like it's trying to be prestige, but it's actually not like, it's actually like, uh, whatever the opposite of elevating, uh, descending <laughs> falling <laughs> degrading that sometimes like excessive like serialization it just feels it feels cheap is when you're just sort of like chopping up episodes um, <laughs> the offer <laughs> um, um, yeah um and so to me like the the serialization in strange new worlds actually is like it's come full circle and it feels elevated and i'm like oh they're actually like writing whole episodes with like an arc for for me to for me to watch that's That's great like (laughs) is it lazier now to do those long form stories compared to these actual single episodes in the hands of some maybe I think it's cheaper. I think it's probably <laughs> cheaper if you're in a writer's room. It might be faster to write one story and then be like, all right, we're going to episode break here, here, and here. Hmm. Like, they're not really, like, making, like, thematically. Like, I'm thinking, like, Mad Men would have, like, really, like, it was, like, one story, but every episode was, like, very thematically, like, linked and mm-hmm. had, I don't it was, like, a unit. Sure. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, a lot of, like prestige stuff like especially on netflix i think is like very like just sort of chopped the irishman could have been a miniseries yeah could have just <laughs> gotten marty to- i i like that well though. anyway I that's my want- thoughts yeah no i appreciate it great well cicero um the dimension that i want to toss to you and i alluded it to it uh for you before we actually started recording but right. you have often uh, related your admiration for Seth MacFarlane's The Orville, yes, which also is uh, an episodic sci-fi show, but it's also descended very directly from Star Trek. So right. do you think Strange New Worlds, first of all, I mean, just your thoughts on the structure, but also does Strange New Worlds owe anything to The Orville? Or since that show was clearly derived from TNG, is this new show's lineage all exclusive to Star Trek? Um, so what I think of the format is, uh, you know, I, I mean, I said it last week, right? It, it, it is, it's, it's so much like, so last week was remembering why you love coming home and you love mom's cooking, right? Smelling it and, and, um, you know, just having those warm feelings come back, right? It, it It's not that you don't love the, the life that you're leading, right? And the, and the experiences that you're having when you're outside of your home, but being able to come back home, it's just that, that sense and that feeling of comfort and the episodic nature of this series, as it's been presented to us in these first two episodes is precisely what, what helped us to fall in love with TOS and then for most of us TNG um but and you know and and 
the reason those series were episodic in the way that they were was because, especially TNG, because they were uh, they were syndicated, right? It, it was running on networks that may preempt it, that may air it at different times. You may not be able to catch an episode one week, you know, one week to the next. So you, but you still want to be able to catch them when you catch them, and don't want to have to give up. And and you know, more importantly, the 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 creators don't want you to feel like you have to give up because you've missed two or three episodes. Um, and, you know, with the hope that you can go back and, and see them at some point uh, in, in the past. But the, the thing that um, this what that also uh, gives the viewer, though, is exactly what Rachel was alluding to was an actual episode. Right. Something that 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 begins. Right. Has has uh, real meat and real weight to it. And then you know, and then a, a definitive ending, right? Not necessarily a reset to zero, but a reset to one, as we've, we've talked about, um, you know, many times before on, on this, on this show. Uh, but, but also with that though, especially what we got, well, we got in both of these episodes, right? We got Star Trek lessons, right? We got the, uh, we got Captain Pike teaching, uh, a a new and up and coming uh, world, a lesson on how to be citizens of the galaxy, and then in this episode, we got an alien species teaching us, teaching Captain Pike how to properly be a citizen of the galaxy and not to judge. And right, so we we everyone's getting those lessons and that's that is the thing that that you know one of the big big things that made me fall in love with sci-fi but specifically fall in love with star trek because it was always full of those types of lessons which brings me right into the orville part of the reason that i've fallen in love with the orville and, and i'm such a big evangelist for the show is because beyond all of the 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 gallows humor that you got in the first couple of episodes, they tone that down and they and they start bringing actual sitcommy con- comedy in there um, in in similar ways that you know that Lower Decks does. Um, you get those same types of Star Trek like stories, those stories where there is a, a, an actual lesson. There is something that you can take away and, you know, not only learn from the show, but think about and really marinate with. And, and sometimes um, they leave you with an, a, a resolution that's uncomfortable that you want to discuss after the fact. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's, the the very best of sci-fi and i think star trek is the very best of sci-fi the orville does a great job of mimicking that um strange new worlds is doing the exact same thing it doesn't really owe anything to the orville um because like you said it all came from you know gene roddenberry and 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 the edict that he put forth Excellent. Great. Well, I think it's uh, uh, very efficiently expressed as usual uh, and much obliged to all of you, but we do have an episode to talk about. So why don't we, uh, why don't we do that 
and we're going to dive into episode two of season one of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, the title being Children of the Comet. So again, credit to the fine editors at Wikipedia for their very, very svelte episode descriptions. Uh, Those are going to serve as the written basis for our episode discussion, but because they are so efficient at relaying just the, the critical components of the plot, I have bolstered their descriptions in places myself uh, so that we can talk about some of the other lingering and specific details. So Cadet Neota Uhura is invited to a meal with other crew members in Captain Pike's quarters, pranked into wearing her dress uniform by Lieutenant Erica Ortegas. When asked by the captain about the experiences that brought her aboard the Enterprise, she reveals that she is unsure about her future in Starfleet because she only joined as a way to escape from the pain of her family's deaths. Uh, so right here, and I talked about just at the very beginning, the the additions to Ahura's history. And I mean, this is it. We've never really heard like her origins have been alluded to in TOS, but they didn't really spend a lot of time uh, building out where she came from and the experiences that molded her into who she is. Um, but before we actually get into Ahura, guys, what did you make of the party? Uh, what is this? What do you think this helps to communicate about the dynamic of the Enterprise's crew under Pike's command? And do you think the captain can cook up a mean plate of ribs, Rachel? Uh, I, I like that it was kind of a throwback to, um, like Cisco, who also likes to cook, and uh, Riker, who I think likes to cook, right? I think he's got an affinity for it. That he likes making omelets or something. Well, he definitely likes making pizza. That's true. (laughs) Um, And they're also on the Enterprise, and they have like dinners. Yeah, yeah, like occasionally. Chef Chef was a character that you never saw. That was an Enterprise. Yeah, an Enterprise. That's what I said. Oh, I thought you were still talking TNG. No, I missed that. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, like uh, I kind of like that they were maybe drawing from this tradition of eating on eating with the bridge crew um and uh i i don't know i i kind of feel like pike is probably a guy who thinks he's a good chef but is it um <laughs> i don't know why i get that impression but, but his whole quarters are basically like designed to serve people like it seems this isn't the first time he's done this Okay. <laughs> if, to me, it felt like a 60s kind of soiree that you would see in an episode of Mad Men, right? Maybe. It's like I mean, they kind. weren't drinking Well, martinis. no. They weren't really. And yeah. there, there wasn't like a simmering resentment among everybody either. I, so. I felt like they had some swank, though. You know? Yeah, like sure. I, I felt like uh, there was some interesting styling choices in the quarters itself. But yeah, for me, this this felt like a real... Like, I, like, I was right there with Ahura for the dress uniform switcheroo, right? Like, before the door opens, you're like, oh, I get it. And then the door opens, and you're like, oh, this is super casual. And then, like, Spock and, and uh, Hemmer are, like, chopping vegetables, and people are, you know, it's like, oh, get, go get your own drinks. And it's it just like, you know, it's like, like, Cicero, you talked about that feeling of going home. 
Um, and for some people, this, this probably feels a lot like that for me. This is like, you know, there's always the, the person who hosts and it's kind of right. like you go yeah. in and it's just like, oh, you're, you're always welcome, you know, come on in, like grab a drink. There's always plenty of food. There's always plenty of people to talk to. And this was like, for me, a radically more relaxed vibe than, you know, just like when I think default captain, I'm thinking of the card. And then the second one coming to mind is Janeway. And so for me, this was like, okay, this is different than that. Um, yeah, both great of way those to the tone for me. They were a little more formal than Pike appears to be at times. A little bit. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Cicero, the party, did, did it look like a good party to you? Yeah, hell yeah, man. I, yeah, the 60s vibe was was in full swing. Yeah, uh, minus minus the alcohol and and cigar smoke or <laughs> um but like uh I mean they they had like lounge music. It was some, you know, some nice jazzy music that was playing. Everyone was relaxed. Pike had his uh, you know, mock turtleneck on, you know, and like uh, Rachel, last week you talked about uh, how how CW sexy everybody is. I concur. Like, I mean, holy crap. Like, I'm looking at Anson Mount and I'm like, oh, man, sexuality is fluid, isn't it? Like, yeah, he I mean, like, oh, uh, yeah, like, OK, I, I yeah, I, I see it now. Um, <laughs> but but like, yeah, it just it it felt like if everyone was invited to the enterprise poker party, right? Like, yeah. it, it, I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it's, and like, remember that there was that one episode where, where uh, Picard shows up and everyone, everyone stops, right? Like clearly <laughs> on this enterprise, Pike is, you know, Pike's cheating, right? Like, yeah. So every, everybody's, everybody's in their plan there. It, it, it gives me, it gives me very NX01 vibes oh, in okay. terms of like the the there is a level of closeness and camaraderie with this with this crew that is like the chain of command is there, but it 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 doesn't have to be. Right, like work-life balance, you might say. <laughs> right, right. Well, well, not even, not even just work-life balance, because you know when it's when it's 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 that this they're they operate as a family, and you know, and even in a family, you have a chain of command. Oh, sure. Right, yeah. and um, and but like within that, there's still the familiar bond that that like the chain of command is there, that respect is there. Um, and it's been earned, but it's given freely. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what I feel like as opposed to it's given because it's supposed to, right. The, the, the chain of the respect and the command structure there feels almost unnecessary. Right. Like, I feel like at any point someone could call the captain Christopher as opposed to calling him captain and, you know, and it not be a problem, right? Like right. that it, you, you haven't been, you haven't earned the right to call him Christopher, right? you know, in the same way that you would have to earn the right to call Picard Jean-Luc. Sure. You yeah. know? Um, yeah. It's a, it's a very, very different enterprise. I, I, it's refreshing. It's really nice. Great. 
Yeah, cool. Well, this is also the first time that we've gotten to meet Hemmer, the Enterprise's chief engineer, which yes. marks only the second time that an Enar, an offshoot of the Andorian race, has been seen in a Trek series. Well, I mean, there's, I guess there's like a total of three appearances in Enterprise, but this is only the second show that the Enar have appeared in the form of Hemmer. Also, just as a note to our listeners for the last episode, I incorrectly referred to the character as Horak in our last episode. That's actually the last name of the actor who plays him, Bruce <laughs> Horak. Uh, but it's like you could have called him Horak. I feel yep. like, but it's still it's not his name. The character's maybe name is that's Hemmer. How he, that's um, how he got his casting. It maybe, maybe. <laughs> but uh, what do you guys think of our first time meeting the Enterprise's chief engineer, the forerunner to Montgomery Scott himself, Ty? Yeah, well, just like another, you know, part of the episode that we'll talk about later. This was an episode for like uh, fun, kind of like Spock relationships with uh, with characters, and I really enjoyed the, uh, you know. How friendly is this? How much are they pulling each other's chains? Uh, how much are they just two gruff, uh, logical people who are maybe not the most sociable? Uh, um, just being at a party together. Um, and that's a dynamic that I'm just like interested to see play out. Um, you know, the engineers I'm uh, most familiar with, uh, probably the one closest to what his character seems to be would be Bolana Torres, and obviously they are they are still quite uh, different individuals there. But uh, she's the the toughest engineer that I know, uh, maybe the most uh, prickly, shall we say? Um, but I think, uh, like Bolana Torres, I have a strong feeling we will come to love Hammer, uh, be really interested in some of his uh, side stories, and learn that he has a heart of gold. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Cicero Hemmer, uh, what did you make of him? Especially, I mean, the, the Enar, that was probably a more, one of the more interesting episodes of the final season of, of enterprise. Yeah. So, uh, how does this character come together for you? Oh yeah. I, I, I love it. I love the fact that we're, you know, uh, there, there have to be, um, every, sh- every show I feel like every good Star Trek show has to introduce a new, um a new species or a new race as a main character um so that we can as 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 uh, the viewer can can gain a familiarity with with more of the of the you know the 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 fauna of of the Star Trek universe uh so yeah i mean i i think it's dope the the way they played it the way that that spock is playing off of of these characters that you know there's there's one thing that i want to say uh, with respect to spock and all of the relationships i like i feel like and and i may wind up uh dinging this episode because of this but i feel like there are lots of relationships that are centered and focused are surrounding spock at this particular at this particular moment and it and it messes with continuity a little i you know i kind of again alluded to it last week right like that he's got this relationship with with pike that seems as as like it's building to be as strong as the relationship he had with kirk and that you know like that like how do i feel about that is you know is 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 mommy cheating on daddy um before you know like you know or am i seeing the boyfriend before daddy 
um, <laughs> right now. And um, like, I, it, it feels weird, but there's also like, it seems like there's this relationship between Uhura and, and Spock that is, is forming and the relationship between uh, nurse chapel and Spock is, is starting to, to form and gel in a way that I didn't see in TOS. And, um, and you know what, what, like what I came to realize as I was sitting and I was watching it was like, you know what, this show could be the TOS for newer generations, right? Like it, it could be for, I, I know even for myself, and this may sound a little blasphemous, sometimes it's difficult to watch TOS, right? Today. It's 60 years old. It was on, you know, it was built on a, a very low budget, but they had huge and lofty ideals. Um, this show carries all of that DNA with some of the similar characters, but without the budgetary constraints. So, like, they can do TOS in a way that TOS just couldn't do it. And there will always be you know, city at the edge of, of tomorrow, uh, city at the edge of uh, forever and, and episodes like that in TOS forever. Um, but like this show could be the thing where people are like, Hey, these are the original adventures of the enterprise or the, the original adventures of the NCC 1701. Um, and here it is. Yeah. I know that, I, I know that hurt you. I'm sorry. I'll only sorry. take moderate offense to what you just said. <laughs> right. <laughs> Look, I, I think it's a natural question to bring up. Um, I'll, I'll just go off on a slight tangent here before we jump back into the discussion. But in terms of some of the relationships that you had alluded to and to your point about when TOS was made and the restrictions that they had to make it under Additionally, they never could have predicted the longevity of this franchise. Of course not. So that plays a big role, I think, in the the way in which it was written. And it's a show of its time. You know, it's as the oldest Star Trek series. Um, I mean, Gene Roddenberry had to fight tooth and nail so that people wouldn't smoke a 23rd century cigarette so that they could get that sweet, sweet sponsorship money. You know, Um, it's it was just a whole other world. However. Some of the relationships, particularly Spock and Nurse Chapel and Spock and Uhura, were alluded to. There were a couple of moments, just very singular moments. Chapel's honestly probably has more legs to it. But with Uhura, there was enough of an indication that there was a greater level of familiarity between them in a couple of points that I could see this as a logical, no pun intended, lead in. Nice to to what we see from them in TOS. And with Nurse Chapel, it's the same thing, but I mean, Chapel's attraction to Spock is very well documented in TOS when in a couple of very specific instances. And I think I'm, I, the, I, w- I was going to mention this later in our discussion and I probably still will, but suffice it to say that um, there was no uh, mystery regarding her attraction to him. And to a degree, he could have reciprocated it. Although what we learned of the reciprocation was kind of under duress and Spock was in a little bit of an altered state. So maybe it's not as reliable, but all of that to say, I think there's enough wiggle room for them to play with it. Um, 
and I'll just leave it at that as the TOS acolyte among us all. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'll just say that I, I don't feel any like strong uh, overwriting happening by strange new worlds to the, to the show that I love so much for what it's okay. For. All right. All right. Well, I, you know, I'll take your word for it. Rachel uh, Hemmer. What do you think of him? I, but he seems cool. <laughs> I, I love Andorians. Yeah. And uh, Enar. And Enar. Well, yeah, but they're like a subspecies of Andorian. Yeah. Yes. True. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Shran was my boy. Yes, he was. Uh, so I, I have a soft spot for Andorians. Really though, Jeffrey Combs is your boy. Well, yes. yes but yeah. Yes, but yeah. Shran of all of his roles, Shran is my favorite. Cool. Uh, although Brunt is pretty good. Brunt is okay. pretty good. <laughs> like, <laughs> we 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 got to do a best of Jeffrey Combs episode. We probably should. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it couldn't hurt. Um, but yeah, I uh, I like his character. It, a really good little introduction scene there. I think really got mm. across everything we needed to know about him. Um. And uh, I kind of like the sort of angle they're taking on his, you know, quote unquote disability, which isn't really a disability, but Mm -hmm. uh, had, I I enjoyed the Uhura being a little bit awkward about like offering help or not offering help. I think that's a nice thing to depict um, because... I, you know, I, I had to go to a, a diversity seminar for work. And I think one of the, um, the things that we talked about was that like our workplace is like pretty not so good at, um, setting itself up for disabled people. <laughs> um, and, uh, like, I mean, even people like have had like temporary issues with like breaking their leg or something, or like I, you know, I don't think a person in a wheelchair could actually work at our, our workplace, even though it's like technically like ADA compliant. Um, well, but, they built a ramp. What more do you want? <laughs> yeah, it's just it's hard, right? Um, so I just I like that. I mean, it's it's like sort of disability representation, but also mm. like a, a good way to like look at at people who have like sensory differences in a way where it's like well you're not you know you're just different um not necessarily disabled you just have different um skills and that sometimes you might get in awkward situations with that like offering help where it's not needed and stuff i think depicting that is is good that it's okay to make mistakes um Mm -hmm. so i i liked that whole whole deal sure And cultural differences too. You know? I really um, like seeing that was something that I think we don't often see depicted with, especially within Starfleet itself or like, you know, within uh, like intra crew dynamics. It was cool to see people sort of making, I guess you could call them mistakes, um, but not really being sure of kind of the right way to treat one another. Um, and a lot of the trek that I've seen is sort of like, once you're in, you just sort of know, right? You you just handle situations appropriately, um, and a lot of that has to do with the chain of command being a little more strict, I think. But it was it was really nice for me to see, like, how does Ohura handle, like, sort of, yeah, making that. I don't know if you want to call it a mistake because I think I don't think she did anything like wrong, right. but 
that was kind of the beauty of the situation to me was that it was not necessarily just like a clear cut case of right and wrong. Like it's living with people and working with people is tough. You have to accommodate one another and people have to compromise and kind of bend around each other. And it's not always clear cut and easy the way it very often appeared to be on uh, Picard's enterprise. So I thought that was a really neat just just going back to kind of the vibe of the party, right? I thought that was an interesting, really nice part of it that I picked up on. Yeah, excellent. Well, um, although she is a prominent TOS character, this is really the first time that Prime Ahura's history has been fleshed out to any meaningful degree. What did you make of her backstory in here? And, and, and does this change the way you see her at all? Uh, Cicero. I'll unmute myself and say, um, I don't think so. Um, uh, it's, it definitely is an interesting backstory. It, you know what? Like, I don't think, Hmm. So right now in my head, there are almost two characters, right? Hmm. There is TOS Ahura. There is, you know, the, the character Ahura, as played by Nichelle Nichols. Um, and then there is the character Uhura that we are seeing today on Strange New Worlds. I have not in my head connected the two characters yet. Like mm. logically, I know that they are like that one is leading to the other. Um, but I feel like I'm, I, you know, I, I want this actor to be able to tell this story. And, and I feel like, okay, so this is how she wound up in Starfleet. Like, okay, that sucks. Your parents and your brother died. Like your family died. Like, I understand it. You, I just finished watching uh, a, a show on Apple TV called Severance where the main character uh, wound up bifurcating his brain because his wife died in a car car accident and he he couldn't deal with the grief so he decided to work you know work for 8 hours so he wasn't grieving for 8 hours and essentially that's what Ahura that was kind of the choice that Ahura made was that she removed herself from everything that was familiar to something um that she knew she could succeed at um, just to get away from that grief and just so she wouldn't have to deal with it, you know, going any further. And, uh, like, you know, sometimes, sometimes when you, you know, when you get older, you realize like, uh, you, you made choices in your life that you don't necessarily think that you would have made. Um, but they, they were the right choice for you. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately, the character that we know of as Uhura decided that this, that the life being, being a, a member of Starfleet um, was, was the right choice for her. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, that's ultimately what we wind up seeing. Sure. Uh, Ty, as someone who is absorbing TOS now, what is strange new worlds adding to that tapestry in your perception of the character, or is it adding anything? Yeah, I mean, well, this is the this is the primary layer for me. I mean, I'm moving pretty slowly through the original series. So, like, my main Uhura sequence so far that I'm familiar with outside of Strange New Worlds is her singing this weird song about the oh. crew. 
Oh. It's like this this <laughs> space shanty. Yeah. And yes. then she likes and then she sings a verse about Charlie and Charlie like Charlie X bugs out. So like I don't you know, like I get it. Like I totally understand the significance of the character to people. Like she see she seems like a cool lady, you know what I mean? And, and like everything I've seen about her character, um and heard about how she's inspired others, right? Like, um I have so so like I don't wanna make light of the legacy of Michelle Nichols depiction of the character. Right. But for me, from my perspective, it's very easy um, to see what one of you mentioned in a previous episode, that it's really just a prison of the mind. If you are not able to absorb this character for who they are in this series that we're watching. Um, And if you can make those connections and see them, that's awesome. But considering we all just got done watching a different Star Trek show where Q just showed up and changed the timeline and they went back in time. And I I still don't even know like how that affected the existing content. Like, like don't worry about it. You know what I mean? Um, Like these people could still all have their memories erased. And um, you know, I I know that (laughs) like, again, I don't want to make light of it. And I, I understand that it should be the same character, um, but to think that they should have had everything figured out and that should have translated all the way down to the crew that was on set that day and to the performance of Nichelle Nichols. And, and like, we should be able to see all of that and like everything that shows up in strange new worlds. Now we should be able to like, see that connective tissue. It just doesn't I, like, it's just not reality. And, and right. um, it's uh i hope it's not distracting to people to like feel like they're missing out on that or or maybe feel like those connections aren't like winding up in the right spot for them um i'll be interested to see like if my view on this changes as i continue to watch tos right and like it it, it's potentially going to be some interesting overlaps of the timing for me as as a viewer um but yeah to me it is uh like this is the this is the prime uhura for me right she's in the uh, first position yeah yeah and so uh it's it's you know <laughs> however she chooses to play it it's right as far as i'm concerned <laughs> so uh yeah it'll be interesting to keep watching and keep talking with you guys about it yeah of course rachel and, and that, I, oh. I just i just want to say this i i think we'll wind up actually getting more minutes time like actual literal time with this version of Uhura um, over. It's, yeah, that's very likely. Right. Over, over what we got of Michelle Nichols throughout all of, you know, all three seasons of TOS and even all of the movies, right? Like all of the content that she's, that she's had. I, I believe that we'll get more about that character through strange new worlds than we, than we, than we had in the, you know, previous 60 years. Yeah, I mean, it's very if they awesome. keep having stories and performances like this for her, then it would be criminal not to. You know, this was just such a delightful story, and the development between her and Spock was just uh, so much fun this week. Well, and on his like third or fourth episode of Discovery, Ensign Mountain became the longest serving Captain Pike in franchise history. Right. You know, outdoing both the originator of the part and outdoing Bruce Greenwood, who was in two movies. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this, that's the, the content train that keeps on rolling with this stuff. 
Rachel Cadet Ahura, does this show add anything to your perception of her? Cause you've lived with her for a while or is this just like, you just rolling with it? I mean, I'm just rolling with it. Mostly. I, she didn't have a backstory. She didn't True. have a lot going on except that she's really good at languages. Mm-hmm. Which itself wasn't really a thing until the 2009 movie. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. I think that a lot of the um, characters in TOS don't, you know, outside of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are pretty thin. Well, do, 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 I like... do, do us a favor briefly. Yeah. You heard Chekhov himself speak about this, did you not? Yes. Do you remember what he said? You told me, and I remember what he talked about being a character that was not Kirk, Spock, or McCoy on TOS working on the show. That nobody gave a shit about you. <laughs> the, 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 word, the verbiage that you described him saying to me is that all we did was move furniture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, for some reason, that didn't stick in my brain, but I'm glad you remember. Yeah, I did. I do. <laughs> that, that stuff just does. I mean, I just remember him saying Rick Berman doesn't didn't give a shit about Star Trek or something like that. Maybe uh, not. Maybe not. I don't know. He seems like he does now, but uh, yeah. But anyway, yeah. The the other characters were not uh, well fleshed out, so they are actually giving her a character, and I think <laughs> that that's good. And I think that um, this actress has the same vibe as, as Michelle. Michelle Nichols. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. See, I, and I guess I come at, at it from a little bit of a different perspective because well before the show started, like when they just revealed the cast and they announced that Celia Rose Gooding was playing Uhura, I immediately made the connection in my head. I was like, oh that's who this is that's ahura she just is and i guess the closest like real world equivalency that i can give it is like knowing and admiring someone but not really ever talking to them and then when you actually get the chance to talk to them and you learn about who they are and and what they've done and things like that it just continues to give you a better perception of someone you already admired that's how i see this like it's not overriding anything Um, and I, I just, I do see that direct connection of this is the cadet of the person that I have been watching my whole life. I mean, uh, Rachel and I, we always talk in, in certain terms about like who our friends are in Star Trek. Her friends are the TNG crew, mine's the TOS crew. So it's like, I get to see my friend again. And I honestly never thought I would ever have the chance to, I thought that the book was closed on Prima Hora for so long and the fact that it's not makes me very happy just speaking for myself but um you know i did see a review recently for this episode that seemed to indicate that the person who was writing the review believed that the presence of a traumatic backstory for ahura particularly for a character of color was somehow problematic is it and i understand that i could be coming from a total direction of ignorance on this topic. So I'm, Cicero, if you don't mind, is this problematic to give Uhura a tragic backstory? 
So I would like to preface uh, everything that I say or everything that comes uh, after what I said, I guess that sort of prefaces by saying that black people are not a monolith. Having said that, um, I will also say that our uh, our uh, main character, right, the person who is first on the call sheet, Anson Mount, playing Christopher Pike, his backstory is the fate for which he winds up in, which is his death that he felt. Um, and I would call that traumatic, right? And I don't, you know, like, I, I don't think that um, there, there, for some people, they may f- find, um, maybe they would like a, a, a character of color to be able to come from a place where they said, Oh, you know, everything was great in my life. You know, both my parents were teachers and, you know, they just wanted the best for me and they did. Right. And, and she had that. Right. Um, and that they didn't die and they sent her off and that could have been a thing that happened, but, but it, it's not as memorable. Right. It's not as uh, dramatic. Um, and it and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily strike a chord in, and I understand where that person's feeling is coming from, but I don't think it was capital P problematic. It was definitely. It definitely felt problematic, and it was problematic for the person who left that review. Absolutely. But that is their feeling, right? And it doesn't have to be everyone's feeling, and it doesn't have to be capital T, the feeling for this particular moment. Yeah, Anybody's I mean, the only reason I bring it up be, is uh, problematic. It just, it seemed like... The, and I'll have to send you the review as written later, just to get your fuller perspectives on it, all of you. But they pivoted first from, oh, it's just such a tired trope for everyone to have a traumatic backstory. And then they introduced the component of a horror being a person of color into it as a secondary component. And that just kind of, well, like, those aren't necessarily the same complaints that you have. Exactly. So why... Are you even bringing one or the other into the conversation? That was just my initial read, but I mean, I I, I miss things at times, as all of sure. you know. So I right. just want to make sure that, we all do. Yeah, but we all do. But I don't. I don't, know. I don't. Yeah, I don't think. I think you were clear-minded on that one. Well, I I appreciate that. Dramatic backstories. Is this a, a tired trope, Rachel? A little bit, maybe. <laughs> but uh, it's an easy way to have a character have a backstory. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of a Star Trek character who doesn't have one, at least a character of note, who grew up with, you know, rainbows and puppy dogs. Well, I mean, it wasn't wasn't rainbows and puppy dogs, but Spock's Spock's got both of his parents. That's true, but he was bullied a lot. Right. He was bullied because he was biracial or yeah. by species, you by know, whatever. Yeah. But yeah. Well, um, I think in real life, though, everybody's got a traumatic backstory, too. To themselves. I, right. Yeah. Like, right. You, 
I, yeah, I mean, you focus in some ways, if you had to tell the story of your life, it would probably like anchor around the sort of traumatic things that happened to you. Probably. Maybe this is coming into fuller view for this person because of Picard. Because really, Jean-Luc didn't really have that traumatic of a backstory until a couple weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that... uh, Yeah, Yeah, I think in light of Picard, it's a little sketchy, but... (laughs) Now, now what what I will say is that 100% of... maybe not maybe 80% of the black people or the people that are are the black actors that are main actors in Star Trek play characters that have some sort of traumatic background whereas whereas not 80% of the characters that are played by white actors have traumatic backgrounds sure so so you know from from that perspective i could i could definitely say i don't i remember what 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 was the background on anthony montgomery's character in uh oh travis mayweather he he grew up uh like on a shipping ship on ship uh, yeah and his parents both his parents were alive they were still on the the shipping container yeah and he ships right he spent very little time on earth growing up Right. Yeah. So, but yeah, like he just didn't have a good relationship with them, but they were, yeah, but otherwise they were fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so he was fine, but everybody else, you know, Michael Dorn was a, a Klingon that grew up around earthlings, you know, around humans. So nobody, nobody liked anybody. Uh, Cisco lost his wife, was a single dad. Uh, Jordy was blind. Right. Like, so, so, you know, all of them had something, I guess, Tuvok. Tuvok was cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, you, you, I think you make a a very valid point. I guess the only thing that I think of, especially like you brought up Ben Sisko and and Jake certainly qualifies for that too, because they were together. But I mean, and they also had the runway, but those characters are just so great. Are they... Um, do they need to have lost their wife and mother respectively to, to get to the same place? I I mean, at the beginning it was pretty important, but, um, and I mean, Ben Sisko is still for many people like the prototypical captain. We all have ours, you know, Ty has Janeway. I've got Kirk. Uh, Rachel has Picard or well, Ty also has Picard, Picard Janeway. Um, but there's a lot of people who have Ben Cisco, and it's what? like he. I can't see like Ben, even though he's a great cook, I can't see Ben Cisco throwing too many soirees. No, uh, no, 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 not at all. But um, not at all. No, it's it, it's just an interesting discussion point. Ty, did you have anything you wanted to add to this? No, I just think like you know, generally characters that you focus on and want to be interesting have. Uh, troublesome elements of their past unless they're hobbits from the shire um (laughs) you know captains in uh starfleet have kind of been an exception but i think intentionally so you know and i think picard we see uh like a very different kind of loss where he's you know he's dealt with the loss of men under his command like uh wesley's wesley's father and things like that um and you know as we saw in Picard, I think you would all have to agree with Shakespeare. Shakespeare, Shakespeare uh, you know, 
Picard suffered the greatest loss of all, never allowing himself to love to begin right. with. Right. Um, so like, you know, I'm kind of being glib, but like, no, I don't have a problem with like traumatic backstories. And, and even if they are like, even if there is, um, kind of like some bias as far as how they break down on racial lines, like, you know, I think you guys have seen DS nine. I haven't, so you know more of how the show maybe does or doesn't engage with these issues, but it's what I love about Star Trek. It's not a universe where everything is just automatically perfect, right? Like, right, right. I don't know. Like the world that we live in, um, it 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 strikes me as plausible that if you went on some navy ship and interviewed the crew, uh, some folks uh, of color would, by percentage wise, maybe have gone through some more difficult circumstances growing up because that's the world we live in. But uh, Star Trek is a story about people who overcome adversity um especially by helping each other and by uh you know learning to uh be a part of this wonderful organization that can do amazing things like we see captain pike and his crew doing uh every single week they're not saving the whole entire multiverse but darn it they're saving (laughs) uh whole planets uh and it's it's beautiful to see right and um so i think it's worthy discussion to have and to pay attention to but i certainly don't get the sense that like the writers are approaching it recklessly um but you know uh, again uh, i'm not really maybe the the target audience of who is maybe most impacted by that question so all i will say is do not make the same mistake that i did and wait too long to watch ds9 because i waited far too long to absorb that show and, uh, I mean, I'm glad that I, I absorbed it when I did, but, uh, it has an excellent reputation for very good reason. So I would highly recommend, uh, an absorption of that at your earliest convenience, of course. Suffice it to say, I love my wife and it's at the top of my list. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, so let's move. We've spent a while on that. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to moderate, but there's a lot of stuff to unpack here. There's honestly more stuff to unpack here than I kind of thought there would be. But um, so later after the party, Pike and Commander Una discuss Pike's growing unease about the vision he witnessed of his catastrophic injury on Boreth. Una attempts to console Pike about the possibility that time may play out differently, but Pike responds that not only does he know when and where the event will happen, but he knows the names of all the young cadets whose lives he will save. So this is really the part of the show that is serialized, which I can see might get in the way for some of the single tale structure episodes thus far. But what do each of you make about this confrontation that the captain is having, having with his own mortality and is this a thread worthy of continued exploration in this way? Ty? Yeah, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I think I'm fine with this being something that uh, he grapples with for some time, and it seems that he will, right? Like, this isn't something that seems like will be resolved in a couple of episodes, and I don't even think it'll be resolved at the end of this season. Um and I could be wrong about that, but it seems like this is kind of just a fundamental part of his character. And sure, we could deal with it. And I think we will deal with it a little more directly than we have uh, in some different ways. But I'm not sure if it's ever something that's going to really go away and get resolved. I mean, like going back to The Simpsons, right? Like Homer learns all these lessons about uh, how he needs to be a better husband. But that doesn't mean that he's done learning those lessons uh, just because... Uh, he, he figures it out once. Doesn't mean he's not going to have to figure it out again. Um, 
for me, I'm not sure how, how interesting the, like, you know, Pike seems like a great guy, but the, like, oh, middle-aged white guy grapples with his own mortality. Like, yeah, you know, it's a little bit of a shrug for me. So I'm more interested in how they play it, like, with his conversations with the other crew and how that impacts his ability to, to lead the crew of the Enterprise. Um, and I'm curious, you know, I, I'm especially curious what the rest of you all uh, think about it, because... I don't know. Maybe I'm a little too cynical about that plot line, but <laughs> I'm certainly willing to, you know, let that be sort of his, uh, his kind of signature character element that he just uh, always has this hanging over him. Sure. Yeah. Rachel, Captain Pike's mortality and the knowledge of his impending uh, disfigurement. What do you make of his struggling to come to terms with that? I mean, first of all, I think that I you said it's more serialized, but I'm pretty sure you could have just watched this episode by itself and you would get it. Sure. Like, they reiterated, like, you didn't have to have any knowledge of the yeah, first they've episode. They've kind of done that if, with both of them, you're right. Yeah. yeah, so in that way, it's actually not serialized. Um, I... <laughs> I don't know. I'll see where they go with it. Um, I'm kind of a little bit with Ty where I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I get it. This is hard for you. Like, <laughs> it's, uh, Suck it up, Captain. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but I like it. It's interesting in that it kind of plays in with the uh, the plot of the episode where sure. we're talking about predestination and he's thinking about predestination. So thematically, it worked together yeah. for me. Um, but, you know, other than that, we'll have to see where it goes. Sure. Cicero, what do you make of uh, of Captain Pike's ongoing struggle with what he knows will come? Uh, in Quantum Leak, every week Sam makes a leap and he hopes that it's the leap back home. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, this is so, like, that's what that's what makes good procedural TV, right? Is, is there's the monster of the week, but it doesn't have to be formulaic like that. Right. And that's, that's where we are. Um, this Pike thing is that's his character flow, right? Like it, it and, and it is like, uh, as we watch captain Pike, as we watch Anson might mount captain Pike it up, um, and, and keep doing it, bro. Uh, but like the thing that we're supposed to think about is just how effing heroic he is because he's, he's still running into the fire, even though he knows it's going to burn him up. Right. Like that he's still trudging along, um, and doing all of the things that he, he can and would do. And he knows he should do because his sacrifice, um, means nothing in the in the scheme of things um and that's who we all want to grow up to be so like you know sure and, and uh bruce banner <laughs> was a was a scientist and you know just don't make him angry uh I, yeah let's go excellent great well let's move along with the plot then so the Enterprise attempts to alter the course of a comet that is set to kill all of the inhabitants of a life-supporting but desolate planet, but it has a force field that prevents this. 
The crew quickly determines that the presence of force fields and structures on the comet likely means it is being guided by intelligent life and concocts an away mission to transport to its surface. Uhura joins the team and eventually discovers that the comet responds to music. Meanwhile, a starship of shepherds who are escorting the comet position themselves between it and the Enterprise. They believe it is a being called Mahanit, who is an ancient arbiter of life and exhibits a degree of religious zealotry due to their indifference to the potential loss of life. So obviously there is a lot packed into this single plot section as it's written, but tell me, what did you guys think of the dynamic of the landing party? And how about the problems that they had to solve with limited external support? Also, it looks like Sam Kirk has the same predilection towards danger as his brother, but maybe not the same resiliency in the face of it. Um, <laughs> but uh, just the dynamic of, of the landing party uh, as presented in the episode. Cicero, lead us off. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the dynamic. This this crew is charming. Um, you know, I, I, I really, really, really appreciated how how much and how often um the crew took the cadet under their wing mm-hmm. right and and really gave you know last week we got in the first episode we got first contact um and and in this one we got our first away mission for the new cadet and everyone at every single turn was taking the time to to just guide her through this right help her give her you know give her pep talks that were both uh poorly done and and very effective um and very well done and very effective um uh but but uh, sam kirk going out and and uh not listening while also giving some some words of wisdom and then getting you know Poop in his pants. Don't think like, with your mustache, Sam. Come on. Right, right. Um, yeah, uh, crew. The crew is cool, man. Uh, you know, if there is one thing that the new Star Trek has done a- incredibly well, it has been casting. Uh, they have done an incredible job of getting just lovable actors to come out there and do some things with wonderful effects that make me keep tuning in and falling in love with uh, the people that they are portraying. Yeah. Excellent. Rachel, the landing party, was this an entertaining ensemble for you? Absolutely. Yeah. It's great having a landing party and the dynamic of like, Oh shoot, we lost the landing party and they're stuck. (laughs) They always get stuck. Um, So I just, I liked it. Like yeah. Cicero said, it's like coming home. It's yeah. A little bit, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta save the landing party. Ty, how about you? Yeah, it was great. As soon as I started calling this thing Mahani, I was, uh, I just, you know, I watched uh, the motion picture recently. So I was Whoa. Googling NASA missions. Like, is there, right. is there some <laughs> kind of mission that is like, you know, a longer <laughs> version of this? <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, I, like yeah, I loved the away team. It was uh, classic. Like, oh, good, we have some redundancy of like two people who are maybe like some linguists or like, I think they said Kirk says, you know, anthropologist, right? Yeah, and then it's right. like, oh yeah. no, okay, no, no more redundancy. 
Um, right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and yeah, I loved, uh, like you mentioned, Cicero, the constant, like not only taking Uhura under their wing, but that reminder, like you are here for a reason, right? Like you right. might feel like you have imposter syndrome, but sometimes the only way uh, through that is just uh, pushing forward and taking that responsibility and faking it until you make it, um, which I think is in a lot of ways exactly what we saw Uhura do. I really hope that the, the the Spock pep talks are kind of a recurring gag. Um, yeah. <laughs> I hope that, you know, Spock giving pep talks is, is like uh, Tim going and talking to Wilson at the fence. I hope we, we just get that. <laughs> uh, we see, and then we can have really long conversations about serialized versus episodic in relation to Spock, Spock's pep talks. But yeah, it was like Rachel said, it was just such a, felt so like yeah this is it right an away team and the shields weren't up but now they're up oh man (laughs) here we go right and now this other ship is hailing us let's go yes (laughs) (laughs) we kind of i think everybody on the panel probably lives for for stuff like that just because it's star trek like that's that's just classic uh, well, we also get to see a little more of the skill of Lieutenant Ortega during these moments where she's slinging oh, the Enterprise man. in and out of the Shepherd's fire and trying to make good on being the best pilot to graduate Starfleet Academy. We're getting a little bit of development for each of the characters thus far. Um, are you satisfied with the pace at which the bridge crew is being built up over these two episodes? Because I know all of us at different points have talked about the difficulty to give an ensemble proper service. So how is Strange New Worlds doing so far, Rachel? Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's two episodes in, Chris. I don't know. Yeah, but do you feel like you're starting, like at the pace that's being established, do you know enough of the people that you're seeing? Yes. And are you confident that they'll continue that pace going forward? Uh, yeah, I hope so. Like I, I, It seems like they're sort of doing like one, you know, backstory per episode or focusing on a, a character per episode and that'll be cool. And I, yeah, I, something that I noticed last week was that all of the characters that I was introduced to were very distinctive and interesting in their way. Um, so yeah, like I, I like that. And so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm I'm excited to learn more about Dr. Mbanga. I'm just I, I'm excited to look to learn more about Ortegas and and um so that's good. I hope they just, you know, keep up the yeah. pace. Yeah, like that. Sure. Yeah. Cicero, Lieutenant Ortegas, and just the general pace at which they're developing the bridge crew. I guess uh, one question that I'll give specifically to you and to Ty probably is just especially coming off of season 4 of Discovery, I think both of you guys had some pretty solid comments about hearing more and seeing more of the the bridge crew in the latest season do you think strange new worlds might be getting it done a little faster well uh so i love ortegas um uh she's great uh i mean she she named a maneuver after herself and what was (laughs) super cool about the the that maneuver was that it wasn't like she was jediing you know there were several times that the ship got hit Right. And and so it wasn't like, you know, oh, man, she is, you know, she's Neo also. Right. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. But like, uh, awesome. Um, the other thing is, I already know more more members of this crew than I do of the Discovery Bridge crew. Right. Like, does that so, include the characters we've seen before? Or are you just talking the newbies. 
I'm talking. Well, I'm talking the characters we've seen before and the newbies, okay. right? So, yeah. so, um, but the fact is, like, I like I have faces and names in my head that I can recite and say, oh yeah, that's definitely those people, as opposed to like, you know, there's Bryce. And then there's the other dude, there's the Asian dude on Discovery, but I don't remember his name. But he could be Bryce, but I'm not sure. I think Bryce is the black dude, but I'm not sure, right? <laughs> so, like, that is, wh- whereas I know who Leanne is, right? Or Laan, or, yeah. you know, however you're supposed to say her name. I know who Ortegas is. I know who Ohura is. I know who Dr. Mbenga is, right? Like, half of the crew, to be fair, right, half of the crew are legacy characters. Sure. Right? Chapel, number one, uh, Uhura Spock, Pike, uh, you know, but like the rest of them, I know who, I know who they are. And I'm only two episodes in. I've watched 40, right? I've watched 40 hours of at least more of Discovery. And I'm not sure who Bryce or the Asian dude is. Right? (laughs) Like... You know, so so On this yes. week's episode of Bryce or Reese. <laughs> yes, there you go, Reese. Yes, Reese is the Asian dude. <laughs> oh, Cicero, thank you for being the one to say that you're not sure which one is the Asian dude and which one is the black dude. That is right. exactly how I feel about those two characters. Um, I really do like, okay, so Discovery, we were praising on Debrief this episode in season four, all in where they had this, it was like the casino that was also a fight club episode where they had to like stop and get the illegal chemicals or whatever, like the zirconium or something like that. Right. Um, And we all really enjoyed that episode um, because I think it told a story that was self-contained in the service of a larger story, but also because that was our, that was, Oh wow. Oloshikun. Right. And that was where we finally got like, after four seasons, what felt like a pretty similar level of depth to what we got with Uhura this season, right? Um, we yeah. got to see, or, or maybe even Ortegas in this this episode, right? Um, <laughs> and so I'm just like thrilled to see, like, and there's so many of these new characters, um, and so I'm I'm thrilled to get to spend, um, hopefully, you know this this amount of time with them i will say it's probably good that detmer transported into the future so that like her and ortegas didn't knife fight each other to death or something <laughs> like that but i i the scene i mean my jaw was on the floor watching the, the the space battle stuff a lot of times with like modern tv and movies like sometimes it feels like we've reached peak um computer animated action sequences and sometimes like I tune stuff like that out almost, but like I was really enjoying watching Ortegas yes. navigate uh, the enterprise. And like you said, take a few hits along the way um, and dodging uh, the, the shots from this shepherd ship. Um, and the reason I brought up Detmer is because it was reminding me of Detmer's level of skill, right? Like you had yes. seemingly the two best pilots in the galaxy um, that right. just, just barely missed each other. Um, right, but yeah, I'm I'm loving the ensemble and just like yeah, more more please. Well, who knows? You might get a uh, a knife fight between Ortegas and Sulu at some point because they right they yeah. overlap. So yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. Um, That's well, true. What do you think it is? I mean, you guys have talked about four seasons. There's all there's still people on the bridge of discovery that you're not totally aware of. 
Um, and I'm there with you, although I'm several episodes behind you guys. Right. Uh, I I know what it is. What is it? I know what it is. So it's that this, you know, uh, as, as Ty alluded to in this episode and and in the first episode of strange new worlds, they were saving planets. They didn't have to save the galaxy, right? Hmm. The stakes weren't so high that you couldn't take the time to find out about which one is Bryce and which one is Reese, right? Like you, you just, because that would seem trivial to spend time with one member of the bridge when the multi, you know, the multiverse is as at the line, you know, like if we don't act right now, it, it always felt, it always felt like uh discovery was mass effect. Right. And they were, you know, they were shepherding their way through these incredible stories that they had to, you know, all the stakes. Yeah. Well, and when I, I mean, this is obviously like a an overstatement, a dramatic overstatement. But when the Messiah is on the bridge, why would you right. spend time focusing on the disciples? Right. When, when yes. you're making a story where the individual Michael Burnham is the personal solution to so many of the right. galaxy's problems. Oh, who can be the bridge between the Vulcans and the rest of the, Oh, it's this one individual person. Right. And as long right. as she's there, it really sucks the oxygen out of the room. Part of the reason that all in episode worked with the Woshikun is because she plays everyone, including Michael Burnham. And if Michael Burnham wasn't there to get played, that story never gets told to us as viewers. And so I totally agree with you, Cicero. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Because there's certainly not incomparable numbers between the crews of, of the enterprise and discovery. So right. they're, yeah, they're, I, I, yeah, I think that you guys worded it pretty well. Do you have anything to add to that? No. Okay. Well, let's, um, I, I, I will, because we talked about this a little bit before, I just want to touch on something that I, I wrote here in the outline so that they're beginning to establish a little bit of tension between Nurse Chapel and Spock, a relationship that was hinted at a few times during TOS. And those two episodes specifically are Mock Time from Season 2 and The Naked Time from Season 1. Uh, the Naked Time is the one where the entire crew of the Enterprise is infected with the Psy 2000 virus, which mm. has very similar properties, it seems, to getting super drunk. Um, and Spock being affected by that. It's actually one of the best performed scenes in the entirety of the original series where you see Spock having to come to terms with that. And, uh, but in, that's also the scene where you see nurse chapel explicitly say, Hey, I love you, man. <laughs> Basically this is what she says. So, uh, we already talked about it at the top of the show, so I don't want to linger on it, but to Cicero's earlier point, um, is this a reasonable backward extrapolation from what we know of their relationship during Kirk's command of the enterprise? I think so, though they're putting a lot more meat on the bone of the character of nurse chapel because she was not, um, they didn't give her a lot of development either. And they're doing a lot more with her she here. She was a nurse who had a crush on Spock. Right. Yeah. I mean, and she <laughs> tried to bring him soup when he was on Ponfar and he threw it against the wall and she was terrified of it. And, and that was, that was kind of the, the extent of it. But I like the idea that what we know about Spock and T'Pring's relationship, maybe some of those cracks are starting to show through nurse chapel. And it also kind of ties into what Spock is having to fight in terms of the internal battle between his human and Vulcan halves. There's a lot of stuff to do here that 
uh, they can do very well without violating anything or the, at least the spirit of anything that we've seen before. So I'll just leave it at that. Um, but let's move along to the, the final part of the plot here. So the Enterprise distracts the Shepherds to allow Spock to alter the comet's course aboard a shuttlecraft. And as it passes by the planet, it releases water vapor into the atmosphere that will improve the conditions for life. Uhura de- decodes music from the comet, which indicates that it had a form of precognition and expected this interference that facilitated the completion of its mission. And Pike ponders the origins of the comet and whether this was more than a coincidence. He also considers the lives of the cadets he is destined to sacrifice himself to save. Uh, so, do you guys think that the presence of precognition is going to factor into the captain's ultimate acceptance of his fate? Because we have the advantage of knowing that he will not and cannot avoid what's coming for him. Like, that's just not really room that they can play with unless they want to violate canon, but they have not. I don't know. I I don't think that that's a possibility considering the track record of the current writer's room. Um, So just under the likely assumption that this is going to happen to Pike, no matter what, is he going to be able to make peace with it somehow through some sort of ability someone has to interact with time outside of its linearity? What do you think Cicero? Well, I, I I do think that this is going to be the big serialized part of the of the plot, right? It's just every week, um, you know, he's trying. It, it, I mean, that's why that's why I made the the uh, comparison to Quantum Leap, right? Like every every week or or sliders, right? Like every week they're going to try something different that's also not going to work. Um, and, and Pike is every week, he's going to get a little bit of, uh, you know, some life lesson. Like I, I, I really do believe that all of the episodes, there will be a life lesson that, that Pike can pull, can draw from, um, some correlation to his own predicament. And that's going to be one of the, like, uh, the through lines of, of this season. Where that brings us in season two, I don't know, um, because it's still the thing that's there. Um, you know, maybe maybe they'll say enough already, and and let him kind of become resigned to his fate and and think about just doing as much good as he possibly can before that day comes. I don't know, but but uh, yeah, they'll they'll keep beating us over the head with it yeah sure excellent you guys have anything you wanted to add is this going to be is our time shenanigans going to interact with the serialized component here time shenanigans yeah no i don't want time shenanigans (laughs) any more than we've already had (laughs) rachel's tired picard has soiled the, the time shenanigans for me. Yeah, if it starts to go like in that direction, I'll, I'll be nervous. But like, there's something about <clears throat> like precognition is a concept that I would be a little wary of a lot of, uh, you know, franchises or shows or universes trying to tackle. But there's something about the Trek universe and the vibe of this show that uh, I feel like I can kind of uh, trust them to work precognition in without uh, being extremely frustrating. So I'm, I'm actually kind of excited to see how they play this off, you know? 
Uh, they've they've yeah. explored this like time and space and emotion thing with the traveler before, and that's always been one of my uh, things that gets me most excited about Star Trek. So there, it feels like there's a little bit of room, a little bit of room to play, even if his 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 fate is kind of sealed. And it might be more of a thematic thing too. Like Pike sees yeah. this asteroid or the, the or this comet rather that uh, it was quote unquote foretold, and everything worked out for the best. You know, maybe just because he knows what's going to happen, it doesn't mean that everything's not going to work out for the best, at least for him. So that's another thing we have the benefit of knowing is how his story ends and it ends nicely. So that's, uh, that's always a good thing. I just want to say that I watched this on a plane. Um, <laughs> and I, at the end when Pike was looking at the little kids that he the who are going to become the people he will save. I started crying, and no, that's no. the exact moment that the flight attendant was like, "Do you want something to drink?" And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, no. No. No, 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 yes, but no, no but that is there, there is a that is a weighty moment. I think that um, especially someone who we know is so like intimately connected to the lives that he is responsible for uh, seeing how those lives are starting. Yeah. That's a big moment. That's a big moment. Um, I wonder how much of the fact that Anson Mount is playing uh, Christopher Pike and we know how much it means to him that he's playing this role plays into the emotion we draw out of those types of moments that he's playing. Sure. I mean, ideally you want your performer to care about what they're doing, right? Sure. Um, but yeah, he, I like, I think you're right though, that it, he, he seems to be a little more connected than most, especially when it comes to this franchise media, at least, at least he, or like taking a very cynical approach. He does a very good job of projecting that. So hey, whichever, um, whatever it takes, man. Yeah. Yeah. Most whatever definitely. it takes. Well, um, so something kind of fun. Some Trek fans have been bringing up the idea that this episode has accentuated that the Comet episode seems to be a thing for Star Trek. So uh, <laughs> some of the ones that I've seen discussed in recent days ever since this new one dropped was Breaking the Ice from Enterprise, where uh, Travis and Malcolm Reed are stuck on the surface of an asteroid. This is season one of Enterprise, right. and uh, they have to work really hard to get back to the shuttle bay Travis or to the shuttle pod because Travis is hurt. And if they don't get back fast enough, then the sun is literally going to fry them like eggs on the surface of this comet. Um, and then there is a death wish from Voyager, which is, I believe in season three where they meet Quinn, the, uh, the other Q oh, who is yeah. uh, trapped in a, in a comet before he is released by the crew of Voyager uh, destiny from DS nine, where a comet gets in the way of a transmitter that they're trying to build in front of the Bajoran wormhole. And then um, masks from the next generation, uh, not particularly a well-beloved episode from season seven, but includes a comet in there as, as a, as a main device. But uh, what do you guys think of this apparent trend of comet episodes? Should we get more of them or should the franchise just break them out for special occasions. What do you think, Cicero? <laughs> um, well, y- you know what? I- I'd rather have Comet episodes than Mirror Universe episodes. Like, <laughs> we're, in- we're in space. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, yes, I had to, yes, I had to yes. I mean, that is that's like saying I don't know. Um, so, <laughs> um, when uh, you know you're in space, you're probably and you're looking at planets. You're probably going to come across a comet or two. Um, so it's it's bound to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it. I love it. Keep them coming. Yeah, sure. You know, I I mandate two comet episodes per season. Minimum. Well, a, lot, a lot of these Minimum. happen early in the runs too of the shows, yeah. except for masks. But we know how that yeah. turned out. All right. Yeah. So, uh-huh. Masks was a like you know in senior year of high school when you're just phoning it in at the end. What's that called? <laughs> Se- senioritis. Yeah, that's what the yeah. writers had for masks. <laughs> <laughs> we got to fill it out. It was a it was a Brent Spiner tour de force, is what that episode was. There you go. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel pretty familiar with TNG, but like I, I'm looking at the episode description on the internet right now as we're talking, and I'm like, no, this, this isn't really ringing any bells here. <laughs> uh, no, but I totally agree with Cicero. I mean, you're in space. I would argue uh, most things that they encounter are just some variation of uh, a body floating in space, whether it be made of <laughs> rocks or metal or gas. So, uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, bring them on, man. <laughs> All right. Well, um, before we actually conclude here, uh, let's l- let's have a little more fun. It's pedantic continuity time. So, uh, from the fine editors at Memory Alpha, some of the uh, the continuity points that are just kind of fun. There's nothing really super consequential here. The Persephone system, which is where the primary planet in this episode is located, will later be visited by the USS Enterprise D 105 years later as the ship picks up Admiral Mark Jameson and his wife Anne from planet Persephone 5 in the first season episode, Too Short a Season from the Next Generation. Uh, Admiral Jameson is kind of TNG's prototypical evil admiral, and he's the one who you see as a super old man who then becomes a super young man before he tries to burn it all down. Uh, just a fun classic TNG episode from season one. The like worst old man makeup it was, you've ever seen just, in your life. It is advanced a bit. Um, <laughs> although you know, if I, I feel like they did the old man makeup better. In uh, in the deadly years from TOS back in the sixties, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know, I don't know. Just and that was a sh- show with a much smaller budget. Um, it's revealed in this episode that Pike learned the names of the cadets he's destined to save. So some of the cadets include Dusty Swender, Tequil Dawn, Malik Al Alcazar, Yuuto Hushida, and Andrea Lopez. And uh, fun fact, in the data that uh, that Pike brought up about all of them, Malik Al-Alcazar lives on Tendara Colony, which is the future birthplace of Annika Hansen, a.k.a. Seven of Nine. So that's kind of a fun little detail that they threw in. And then, of course, this episode establishes that Ahura was born and raised in Kenya. So uh, they're just doing uh, doing more to provide actual ser- character service and, and uh, continuity service to Ahura, which... I'm very happy about any final thoughts though, before we dismiss for the evening and get ready for episode three. Yeah. Sorry. I blew my shot with the, the comet because I was <laughs> laughing about celestial bodies, but 
I, I just <laughs> wanted to just just pause for a quick second on how awesome was it that they were trying to just avoid a collision and then they ended up like completely changing the biome of the planet and turning yeah. it from like a Tatooine to um I don't Endor. Know. Yeah, yeah, let's go with that. Um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was like I, and that's what I love about I, I think that's another thing enabled by the stakes not being galaxy wide is yeah, like you right. can you can do that. You can swing the other way. And like for me personally as a viewer that's kind of like it was almost like a wink kind of thing, you know what I mean? It's like okay, yeah, sure, like you could you could you can do that, you know what I mean? Like that's that's kind of a lot, right? But it does tie in with that thematic thing of the precognition and the destiny and like what is the height, whatever you know, V'ger, um, V'ger two, um, and and like so I just like yeah, that was such a nice icing on the cake of this episode that left me so excited to see uh, what what that old starship rascally starship gets up to next what planet it is <laughs> it was almost like a direct response because we had kyle sullivan on a few episodes ago and one of the problems that he said he has with modern trek is that the stakes are always too high and right. uh here we are season season two of discovery um we as we were going through it and we were meeting uh captain pike and 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 uh michael burnham's brother uh and um, we were we were treated to a couple of these episodes where they they felt like they were standalone episodes as they too were dealing with a comet, right? This the red the red angel right, yeah. was, was a was a comet. The bursts, um, yeah. But but uh, the, the they felt like they were self contained episodes that had a through line, um, a serialized plot point that would you know went through, and we were talking about how refreshing that was, and that you know and and. And I recall speaking optimistically about the fact that maybe this is what Discovery is going to turn into, right? That we'll be able to have these stories. And that's what, you know, it, it turns out that obviously that's that hasn't been what Discovery has turned into. But but we do have Strange New Worlds well, why not for both? that. Right, right. But why, but why not both, right? Um, that's what we have with Strange New Worlds. And, and, and you know, what's great is that these writers can now sit down and, and, and have like, all right, we're going to tell a, you know, an existential humanist story, you know, allegorical story. And we're going to use these, like, let's throw, throw uh, darts at the board or spin the wheel and see what, goofy things we can align and and put that together in a story and we can do that and have something that's kind of kind of hand wavy but very sci-fi happen at the end and you learn the lesson and everyone feels good about it because we learned more about the crew we had a good time we you know there were some there were bumps and bruises we laughed we cried um we sang a song and we you know we uh reset to two at the end of it, I, I, I mean, the, the not your Trek guys, this is your Trek. Here it is. Here it is. <laughs> Cicero, I think you like this show. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit, <laughs> maybe a little bit. Rachel, any final thoughts on children of the comet? No, huh? <laughs> I'm getting tired. <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. Well, uh, well, ladies and gentlemen and other fellow humans, that's it for episode number 77 of Discovery Debrief. 
We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. And if you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show wherever you found it. It only takes a minute. And let us know you wrote one, and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes, and be sure to join us next time as we discuss the continuing adventures of the Starship Enterprise. As always, though, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends. Thank you.